Hollywood Community Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. If you have been with us uh, this summer, uh, you know that we have been walking through a series based out of the book of Ephesians that we've called Pact. What we've seen in this series is that that if we are in Christ, if we have trusted in him for the forgiveness of our sins, then God has packed within us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And he's packed it inside of us, not only that we would be blessed, but also that we would unpack those blessings and live according to those resources as we live out our Christian lives. And so we've seen that over a number of weeks in this 12-week series, and today we are going to be in the 10th installment of this series as we look at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. Uh, But before we look at those verses together, I want to just reflect on life a little bit with you and share with you that next month uh, in August, my wife Kimberly and I will celebrate our 18th wedding anniversary. Uh, It's been such a a blessing. Wow, this is a clapping morning. I appreciate that. Hey, uh, it's just been wonderful to be married to my wife for for 18 years, and and we uh, were were dating before that. We've known each other since we were, were, were children practically, and, and just what a, what a blessing it has been to live life with her, what a blessing uh, God has given me in my wife. Um, and you know, I, I really always want to be a good husband. I, I set that as my goal. I can tell you in 18 years of marriage, I have not gotten up any of the mornings in those 18 years and said, you know what, today I hope I fail as a husband. That, that is not on my to-do list, never has been. Uh, not one time. I can also tell you that as a pastor here at Wildwood, this is um, going to be my 14th year at Wildwood coming up this winter. And one of the things that, that I've gotten the privilege of doing at Wildwood is to officiate a number of weddings. Uh, nearly 100 weddings I've officiated in the last 14 years here. As some of you are sitting out here, some of the first service that I've had the privilege of being able to walk with you through that season. But one of the things that happens whenever um, somebody's getting married and I'm going to be officiating the ceremony, I always want to get together with them and talk beforehand about God's plan for marriage. And, and as we do that, as we get together and we talk about some of those principles, I can also tell you that I've yet to find the future husband or the future wife who says, you know what, I can't wait to get married so that I can fail as a husband. I can't wait to get married so that I can fail as a wife. I mean, this is on nobody's to-do list, right? And yet, the sad reality is when we think about our lives, uh, many times we think of, of how we have lived into our marriage vows or our wedding vows, how we are living up to our role as husband or wife, and we feel like failures. Anybody relate to that? I can Um, there are many times in my life that I've felt like a failure as a husband. I can tell you as somebody who has officiated a lot of weddings, but also as somebody who has met with a number of couples um, after they have gotten married, I can tell you that that there are many times that spouses feel defeated or like failures in their marriage. I'll give you, uh, you know, some reflection on that. You know, I think there's just two reasons why people will, will feel like a failure in their marriage. One reason is this, sin. You know what, you're a sinner, I'm a sinner. If you're married, you're married to a sinner. 
That means that that person is going to fail to hit the mark, going to fail to do God's best, is going to, to do some things in your marriage that will cause pain and conflict and consternation that are wrong, that are, that are not what God wants. And that causes some, some tension in the marriage and can cause us at times to feel like failures when we sin in a way that impacts our spouse. But I can tell you there's another category of failure that we feel in marriage that doesn't have anything to do with sin, but has to do with kind of an unmet expectation in our own mind. You know, when we get married, we desperately want to be a good husband. We desperately want to be a good wife. But what does it mean to be a good husband or a good wife? Sometimes we don't think about what God is really calling us to as a husband or wife and what, what gets put together is some kind of conglomeration of every television show, movie, words of wisdom from a friend, maybe a Bible verse, a flip over calendar, a greeting card. Um, all this stuff gets, gets put together along with our own expectations and whatever it means to be a good husband, it's just out of your reach. Whatever it means to be a good wife is just out of your reach and you feel like a failure as a result. I would call those feelings of failure that result from a, a misunderstanding of what God is calling you to in your role of husband or wife. I'll give you an example from my own life in, in that respect. I mentioned we've been married 18 years. One of the greatest gifts that God has given me is my wife, and, and my wife walks with God, and that's a, a tremendous blessing. But one of the things that, that happened, especially early on in our marriage, was um, she, would, she would often say, hey, let's, let's pray about that. And she would often say that before I did. Now, that was trouble for me because I was a seminary student. I was getting ready to be a pastor. You know, I, I thought that being a husband and being a leader of my home meant that I would always be the first one to say, hey, let's pray about that. And every time she would say it first, I would feel like a failure. And then I would kind of retreat and withdraw. Well, what is that? Was that sin on my part? Well, we're all supposed to live a life of, of consistent dependence upon God, but I don't, God never said, hey, Mark, you will always be the first to say, let's pray. And if not, then you're a failure. That, that verse doesn't exist. But my misunderstanding of my role as husband and my misunderstanding of what God was offering me with a godly wife caused me to feel that way for a while. And so I think it's very important for us as believers in Christ to spend some time looking at what God actually says about the roles of husbands and wives uh, that we would be equipped for our life uh, in marriage. And so, um, you know, statistics would say that if you're not married, you might be one day, not that everybody will. There's a special gift of singleness that God has for some, but, but many will. And so this is a very pertinent, relevant passage for us. And so we're going to look today at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. Before we unpack them, I want to read them for us. Verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with a word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, 
A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, in these 11 verses, we see some of God's call to husbands and wives, and we're going to look at that this morning in in two parts. The first thing that we're going to see in here is the beauty of Christian marriage, the beauty of Christian marriage. Now, even when I say that, uh, some of you are going to react to that. You're not going to react in a violent way. You're not going to get up and yell and scream, but you're going to, as you sit in your seat, emotionally, you're going to tap the brakes. Intellectually, you're going to tap the brakes. You're going to say, you know what? I don't know that Christian marriage is really beautiful because your understanding of what a Christian marriage is all about may be something oppressive. It may be something that that denigrates women in, in, in some way, shape, or form. If you're a guy, it might be something that is calling you to something too lofty that you'll never be able to get to, something unattainable, and you just want to tap the brakes a little bit. You want to say, hey, Christian marriage isn't all that beautiful. Or maybe you have known others who have called, on the, the, called themselves believers in Christ and their marriage is nothing that you would ever want to follow. And you say, if that's a Christian marriage, I, I don't want that. Christian marriage is beautiful. Really? Some of you are asking that question right now. And yet the picture that the Bible paints, what God actually says about marriage is in fact a, a picture of something that is very beautiful. And it's, it's easily seen when you look at it in, in contrast to, to everything that was happening in the world when Paul originally wrote Ephesians chapter 5. See, the, the world of Ephesus, the world of first century Ephesus, and really much of the world, not only then but even all the way up to now, was a male-dominated world. It was a world where, where all the rights were with the men and the women had none of them. That was the norm in the world in which they lived. And when you look at really the flow of what happened in the history of humanity, that makes sense how it ended up there. Because all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, when sin first enters the world, God speaks and says, you know, there's going to be some consequences for how husbands and wives relate to one another that will flow out of the fact that sin is now in the world. By virtue of the fact that that sin is now tainting the souls of men and women, there's going to be some negative outflow in the most basic relationships, even the relationship of husband and wife. This is what God says is one of those consequences in Genesis 3, 16. He says to the woman, he says this, he says, your desire shall be to control your husband, but he will dominate over you. God says one of the consequences of sin is that the woman's desire will be to control her husband and the husband will dominate the wife. That is what the world or that is what the flesh produces in marriage. We might be nervous about what a Christian marriage is, but think about what a non-Christian marriage is according to Genesis 3, a a marriage that is not influenced at all by the grace of God, a marriage that is merely run by the flesh will lead to a woman that wants to control her husband and a husband who wants to dominate his wife. 
what a, what a sad state of affairs that would be. Who wants to be a part of that marriage? That was the world of Ephesus. That's the world of the flesh. That is a marriage that is truly unchristian. That is, is, is where it's headed. Well, in contrast to that, God begins to change the hearts and lives of people in Christ. God transforms us and gives us a whole new way of relating to one another, not just husbands and wives, but all people. We have a new orientation, not according to the flesh, not to see people as someone to use, but to see people as someone to serve, to see how we can put down our rights in order to lift or build up others. That's the way God wants us to relate in Christ. And we saw this last week in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 1 where Paul says, Be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. This is not talking about husbands or wives. It's talking about all of us. All of us are to have an attitude of loving sacrifice for one another. That we are not to say, hey, these are my rights, you must meet them, but we are to approach each other in such a way as to say, I'm going to lay down my rights to build you up. That's the way God wants all of us to relate to one another. And God doesn't just say that he wants that, but he actually equips us for that task. He actually transforms our heart, he transforms our lives, and he gives us the Holy Spirit to be a controlling influence to make it possible for us to love as God loves. Look at what it says in chapter 5 and verse 18. Uh, Paul says, do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. He says, don't let your base level fleshly desires control you. Instead, be controlled by the Spirit of God that lives inside of you. And if you are controlled by the Spirit of God who lives inside of you, you will love as Jesus loved. You will lift others up. Uh, Verse 21 says that one of the outflows of the Spirit-filled, the Spirit-controlled life will be that we will submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. What does it look like to be controlled by the Spirit of God? It looks like I'm not looking for you to make me happy. I'm looking to lower my rights and to humble myself to serve you, to, that you would be all that God has created you to be. Again, this is not something that is a call for husbands or wives. It's a call for people. There's a new orientation to the way that we are to relate to one another. Well, if that's the way that all believers are to relate to one another, then it should come as no surprise when we finally get to chapter 5 and verse 22 when he says to wives, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, some may see that statement there, wives, submit to your own husbands. You might think, well, said just before in 521 that we're also supposed to submit to one another. Now he says, wives, submit to your husbands. And you might think, well, is that a a different word for submit? Is it a a different kind of submission that a wife does to a husband than, than people do to one another who are believers in Christ? The answer to that is kind of a yes and no. You see, in Ephesians 522, uh, the word for submit that is used in 521 is, is not there. But you know what else is not there? any word that says submit in 522. Ephesians 522 doesn't include the word submit. Now, it's totally appropriate for our English translations to bring that word forward because it's clearly the intention of the passage. This is literally what it says. It says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives to your husbands, as to the Lord. 
In other words, it's the same concept. It's the same idea. Wives here are called to, uh, as, as Tom Constable puts it, to, to re- willingly relinquish their rights to structure their lives in a way to support their husbands. That's what the call is for a wife here. It's interesting, he doesn't use the word obey. He uses that word later on when he talks about children. It's not that wives are to obey their husbands, it's, to, it's that wives are to support their husbands. It says they're to do that with their own husband, not just women to every man. There's a special relationship between a wife and her husband. And it says, as to the Lord. That little phrase there is very significant. It doesn't say that, what, what, what it's really saying is that a, a wife, her submission to her husband is a step of obedience to Jesus that ultimately her allegiance is to him. She ultimately obeys and follows Jesus, not her husband. So if a husband was ever to ask a wife to do something that was contrary to the will of God, the wife would not need to follow that lead because ultimately she is following Christ. She's submitting to her husband as a step of obedience to Jesus. Continues on. It says the, the husband is the head of the wife. What does that mean. I think what the significance of that is, is that the the husband is the representative leader of the home. We get evidence for that back again in Genesis chapter 3. We know in in Genesis 1 through 3, God created Adam, he created Eve, he brought them together in marriage. They're living in paradise, and God says, don't eat of that tree that has this fruit, but yet they eat of that tree that had that fruit, and they sinned, and consequences came in the world, and, and God shows up. Remember, it was Eve who first ate, and then she handed to Adam, so now they're both sinners. Eve was even the first to take the initiation there. And this is what God says when he shows up, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 8. He says, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man called to Adam, and he said to him, where are you? In other words, when God showed up, he called forth the representative leader of the first family, and he said, I want to have a conversation about what happened in your family. God has certainly got things to say to Eve. He's going to talk to Eve. He's going to address Eve directly. But when it came to something that had happened in the first family, God first comes to the husband and he says, as the representative leader, let's talk about what happened here. I think it's a great picture for what it means for the husband to be the head of the wife. The husband is the representative leader of his family. Jesus, the representative leader of the church, husband representative leader of the family. It doesn't say he's a dictator. It says he's a a leader. Going on, it says, wives should submit in everything to their husbands. I think what the implication of this is, is that there's no part of a wife's life that she keeps away from him. She doesn't come to, some, I've heard people describe marriage as a 50-50 proposition. It takes 50-50. I, I would say that's a lie. Marriage is a 100%, 100% proposition. It's all of the wife, it's all of the husband coming together. The wife and the husband are to be one. They are to come together. They are to support one another. Wives, submit to your husbands, he says in 22 through 24. Then he goes on to the husband. 
And what his call is to the husband is, again, a call to submit. Remember, all of this flows under the headline of submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The husband is not to take his opportunity of leadership within the family as something that gives him privilege, but he's to see this this position of leadership in the family as a responsibility to lay down his life, to submit, to structure his life in such a way to support his wife that she would be all that God created her to be. Look at what it says. It says, husbands, love your wives. How? By imitating Christ's love, the love that Christ had for the church and gave himself up for her. It was a self sacrificing kind of love. What does it mean for a husband to lead? It means for a husband to humble himself, to say, not what I want to do, but what's best for our family. What's best for you, your wife. We, we love them by sacrificing for them. And we do that in, in, in a couple of ways. One way we do that is by pointing them to God's best. Look at what it says in 26 and 27. There's this talk about sanctifying, cleansing, washing with the water of the word. What's that talking about? I think it's a call for husbands to provide for their families in a spiritual way, to provide for their wives in a spiritual way. You know, I told you my misunderstanding, my misunderstanding was that if I was to be a Christian leader in my family, then I would always be the first to pray. Not that it's bad to be the first to pray. Don't walk away thinking that. It's good to be the first to pray. But, but what my call as a leader in the family was not to be the first to say it, but it was to create an environment in the family where prayer was important, to create an environment in the family where following God mattered, create an environment in the family where we are worshiping on a regular basis Jesus and we take our marching orders from him and and from no one else. That's what it means to lead spiritually is that, that we orient our families to where honoring Christ is normal. That doesn't mean that you have to have every good spiritual idea. It doesn't mean that you always have to be the first to pray. It doesn't mean that you have to have more Bible verses memorized than your spouse. What it means is that you've got the value that you're holding up and you say, we're going to follow Christ together as a family. You're going to lead by making that value a priority. Husbands are called to, to submit to their wives, to support them in such a way that creates that as a value for the home. Verses 28 and 29 moves on from spiritual things to physical things. He says, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. And goes on about nourishes and cherishes. This is, this is the idea. Your physical body you care for, one of the most basic uh, things that you know how to do coming right out of the womb is you know that when you're hungry, you want something to eat. That's why babies cry. You know that when you're cold, you need something on you. That's why babies cry. Babies cry a lot, right? Um, we, this is built into us. As we get older, we're able to, to grab some, of the, some food and, and feed ourselves. We're able to find our own clothing and clothe ourselves. But that is one of the most normal desires. And what this passage is saying is when you're married, you become one flesh. That means what was normal for you to provide physically for yourself now must be normal for you in providing for your spouse. This is not saying that you have to have a certain income level. It's not saying that the distribution of income between husband and wife will be such a way. It says that the husband will lead out by having an environment in the family where the physical needs are provided for. Submitting. Loving. Nourishing. Cherishing. 
After making these comments to husbands and wives, this is what he says to both of them. He quotes Genesis chapter 2, and he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and will hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This oneness that comes in Christian marriage is, is a, it's a, they, they, will, they will be cemented together. There is a permanence that comes when a husband and wife come together. They, they become one before God. And he says that that oneness in marriage is a mystery because it refers to, to Christ and the church. One of the reasons why people around churches are, are so interested in developing marriages is one of the reasons why if somebody is leaving their spouse, there will be believers in Christ who will come alongside and say, what are you doing? Do not do that. Why, why do we behave that way? Why do we care so much about marriage? Well, partly because there's a covenant that was made before God, but partly because marriage is supposed to be a picture of Christ and the church. His love for us doesn't end. Therefore, our commitment in marriage should model that commitment. I say that. I know that there are those in the room that have experienced the pain of divorce, and, and I know that, that as I say that, there's, there's part of that that stings, but there's also part that you go, I know exactly what you're saying. God's plan is for this to be together, and, and even though a document has separated us, there's still pain, there's still splinters. See, a husband is to love his wife. A wife is to respect her husband. See, a Genesis 3 kind of marriage is marked by what? Control and domination. But a Christian marriage is beautiful. In what way? What's it marked by? Love, sacrifice, support. See, God turned the fleshly pattern of our hearts and lives, and he gave us something so much better. And so when we think about what it means to have a Christian marriage, it is beautiful because it is a gift of something that we would not have known on our own. There's beauty in a Christian marriage. But you know what? There's something even more beautiful. There's beauty in Christ. There is beauty in Christ. And when you read Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, one of the things we do is we very quickly pick up the husband-wife language and we focus on that and we look at that. And yet, is this passage about husbands and wives? Yes, but you know what else it's about? It's about Jesus Christ. And you know what? There may be some who are here today who have never married and who would love to be married. There may be some here who were married and saw their spouse get up and walk out on them. Um, and there's, there's this difficulty when this, this topic comes up and there's pain. There may be those here today who marriage is, is unsatisfying in, in different ways and you're struggling this morning. And, and no matter where you are in that process or on that spectrum, I, I want to just say this. All of us have the opportunity to be connected to the beautiful bridegroom of Christ. And his beauty and his commitment to us and his care for us pour forth in this passage. Look at what we saw. It says that in verse 23 that Christ is the head of the church. He is our leader. He's who we follow. He is our Savior. He's the one that we submit to. 
that we follow. We don't have to wonder which direction he wants us to go. We get to follow him, and he always leads us in the right direction. That's the beauty of Christ. Verse 25, this beautiful Christ who offers to be our Savior is someone who loves us and shows that love and that he gave himself up for us. And not only does he love us and not only did he give himself up on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, but that act makes it possible for us to be, verse 26 and 27, totally cleansed, presented before God without spot or wrinkle or blemish. What a beautiful Savior we have that he would make a commitment to us to cleanse us and to present us to God in such a way. Verses 28 and 29, this, this Jesus, this, he's so beautiful to us in that he has made a commitment to us, bringing us into his own body. He says that he nourishes and cherishes us just as Jesus does, members of his body. You see, we all have the opportunity to be connected to the beauty God created marriage and a husband and wife and and recreated it and reshaped it according to the work of his spirit in such a way to, to cause us to long for the most perfect bridegroom of all that is Jesus Christ. Even the best of Christian marriages merely hint at how wonderful a relationship is possible with Christ. And this morning how we're gonna wrap up our time is we're gonna continue to worship and remember what a beautiful Savior we have. And we're gonna do that through song and we're gonna do that by celebrating the Lord's table together. So let me pray before we get there. Father, I just thank you so much for your love. I thank you that you've given us your word to let us know that we can trust you with all things, including our marriages. Father, that we would be a people that would be controlled not by our flesh to control and dominate others, but we would be controlled by your spirit that would allow us to support and sacrifice and love in a way that builds up into all that you've created to be. Father, that every husband would love his wife that way, that every wife would love her husband that way, um, and that together there would be a picture of the incredible gift that you offer all of us through Jesus as people look at marriages within the church. Father, I pray that you would help us now to continue to lift you up and to worship as we sing and as we partake of the elements of bread and wine together. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are going to be celebrating communion here now. And uh, so the way that we will go about that, I want to invite you to remain seated and to sing with us as we sing of the mercy of our God. But as we sing, the ushers are coming forward and they will pass the elements among you. Uh, The bread, a symbol of the body of Christ. The, The juice, a symbol of the blood of Christ. And if you have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, we would invite you to partake of this meal together with us as we celebrate God's provision um, of his beauty in Christ. And so at this time, I'm gonna ask the ushers to come and that you would join us in singing about the mercy of our God.
I will kneel in the dust at the foot of the cross where mercy 